So ENIAC number one is in hand. I've got a copy. You've got a copy. And I think that there is a bit to talk about. This is Overthinking the Bad. My name is Sean Neprude, and I am going to be your host in this discussion of ENIAC number one. But before we get to the book, did you get your button? I got mine, and I got it at my comic shop, Collector's Paradise. Of course, what I'm talking about here is the gold button that Bad Idea sent out to each one of the Bad Idea stores with a lovely number one logo and ENIAC printed on it. This button was meant to go to the very first customer that picked up a copy of ENIAC number one on the day of release. I know probably at least one or two of you out there listening were one of those that camped out or got to your store at the crack of dawn, waited for hours outside to get that ENIAC button. And I salute you. Because that is awesome. (laughs) That is incredible. I have never waited that long outside of a comic book store for anything, I think. I kind of lucked out getting my button. I got to my store 10 minutes before opening with the hope that nobody else would be there. I kind of assumed that there would be at least maybe one or two other people there. But no, I got there. Nobody there. So I quickly ran to make sure I was first in line. I figured 10 minutes was about the amount of time that I was willing to spare. And I went into it with the expectation that if I get the button, awesome. I will be thrilled. But if I don't get the button, no big deal. It's just the button. I will live with not having it. But it all worked out in my favor. And I got that ENIAC number one button. I wore that button all day proudly. I read it as I drove home from the comic book shop. I read it as I read the comic for the first time and then I took it off and it's sitting here next to me on my desk right now as I record this. What's with Bad Idea's obsession with buttons anyway? That's uh, maybe a thought for another time. But you know, for as silly as this button was, it worked. It got us out at stores waiting in line to buy this book. And you know what Bad Idea got out of it? is a bunch of pictures of us waiting outside in line in front of our comic book stores to buy their comic book. So you're welcome, Bad Idea, for that promotion that we all collectively gave you. I think this button thing created a lot of hype. And let me tell you, the hype seems to be real. I saw today on March 14th as I record this that a ENIAC number one button just sold on eBay for four hundred dollars four hundred dollars for a cheap crappy button that says number one ENIAC on it there's not even any branding or much else on it though I did actually just notice picking this up that there is something printed on this button around the rim on the back it says if you're holding this you're an official recipient of the first copy of ENIAC number one at your local comic store. Blah, blah, blah. I can't read this. Ah, it's just the same thing printed again. If you are holding this, you're an official recipient of the first copy of ENIAC number one at your local comic shop. 
Looks like that's printed two or three times around the back rim of the button. So make sure if you buy one that it has that printed on it. Don't accept no imitations or fakes. Make sure you have a real genuine ENIAC number one button. So a button just sold for $400 and ENIAC number one is still selling for about $150 on eBay. That is a lot of hype for this book considering that it really is nothing more than just the first regularly published Bad Idea comic book. Now, I'm not counting the Hero Trade as the first regularly published book. I'm counting that as the first irregularly published book. But the first regularly scheduled, promoted, published, and distributed book, any act number one, that's what this book is. And I guess the comics industry is going nuts for it because it hasn't died down in about two weeks since release from that going price of about $150 plus or minus. To be honest, I don't see it really going down that much beyond that. I don't think that there's too many copies of this book. I am guessing that the print run is in the low thousands. I'm making that number up. I have nothing to go on other than the fact that there are... Uh, just under 300 Bad Idea comic shops. And it seems that I don't know what the average number that each shop got, but it doesn't seem to be too many in the probably 10 to 20 range is the average number of first prints that each shop got. In that case, we're looking at maybe a three to 4,000 copy print run. I have no idea. I am making these numbers up. Do not quote me on them, but it's just a thought. I don't know. I don't see a lot of sign of this book really cooling off. Several hundred have sold on eBay already, and this price is being sustained, which shows me that there seems to be a lot of support for this approximately $150 price for ENIAC number one. And all this is good and all, but I want to talk about the dang story, because while I think that all of the goings on around the book, the investment side of it, the speculation side of it, the difficulty to get side of it, the uh, limited nature, the first prints, the not first prints, the immediately selling for $150 on eBay, even the not first prints selling for $20 to $30 on eBay. All of that is good and interesting and all, but is the book any dang good itself? And that's really what I want to focus on for the rest of this episode is the book itself, the story itself. So the first thing I notice about this book is it feels darn good in hand. They printed this with some nice, hefty cardstock cover, which makes me think that we're actually going to see quite a large number of highly graded copies of this thing. I think that this will be a book that it is easy to get a very high 9.6, 9.8 when being submitted. So I expect to see a lot of those or relatively high number of those for the number of copies that are out there. But it feels good, you know? It feels substantial. It's a hefty cardstock cover. It has spot gloss printing on it, which is really cool. It's an extra layer of printing on the cover where certain portions of it have a glossy printed layer on top of it to make them pop just a little bit more. I don't know if this is going to be something that's on every issue 
that comes out or if they're just going to save that extra little pop of gloss for special occasions we'll see but pretty cool pretty interesting so i'm going to flip through this book and recap it and talk about the story that goes on as we see it it jumps right into a mission that fletcher and falk is on we find out later that this is the Black Sea mission when they have their little special powwow with the Secretary of Defense. But they're in search of information, going after some terrorists, Russian arms dealers, something like that. And we get right off the bat that this is a brutal team of operatives that will use every tool at their disposal from their special abilities to find the hard drives in a tent to their pinpoint accuracy with small and large arms, their ability to confirm people with their smartphones using some sort of, I'm sure, super secret, top secret agent app that they've got, as well as their sexy sex appeal to pretend to poison poor Russian agents. I like these first opening pages because it shows us who these two characters of Fletcher and Falk are. They are basically two really badass agents who are very good at getting their job done and really don't have any qualms about any methods necessary to achieve their goals. And killing is all good. Maiming is all good. It doesn't matter as long as they get their man in the end which they certainly do. And now, a dramatic reenactment of one of the early scenes from ENIAC number one. Except, since this is a family affair, the vulgarity will be replaced by duck sounds. Remain calm. You've been poisoned. You're going to die in the next five minutes. If you want the antidote, follow me. Are you kidding? I followed you. Now may I have the antidote? There's no antidote, Igor. Because you aren't poisoned. I can't tell if you want to f**k me or kill me. You're already f**ked. I'm just here to kill you. If you're carrying a weapon, I hate to think where you've hidden it. We know you've been hiring headhunters in Afghanistan to target American soldiers. We followed the money, and now we're cutting off the supply. (laughs) You're a fool. I'm not the money. Russia's just funneling the cash through me. If I die, the- We know. But if we kill the Russian deputy minister, we start World War III. So we're just sending Moscow a strongly worded message through you. What's the message? Go quack yourself. Falk, next time, you have to play dress up. 
That concludes our dramatic reenactment of an early scene from ENIAC number one. So then we jump to an undisclosed location where a man is sitting around naked talking to these two ladies under a big umbrella with some sort of cooler next to him, sweat beating and dripping down his face, and he tells them that he has a new mission for Falk and Fletcher. And that mission is ENIAC. He also mentions that he's paranoid about this next mission and that his two agents would be wise to be just as paranoid as he is. And here's then where we get the secret history of ENIAC. ENIAC is a computer, or specifically the Electronic Numerical Integrator and Computer that was designed during World War II by this poor sap Ned who wears his bow tie to work and works way too late into the evenings just trying to find the right way to bring this computer to life. He seems to do that despite his uh, buddy there, Roman, who tries to get him to go out and have a life and maybe go have a drink after work or something like that. But Ned won't have it. He keeps pushing ENIAC further and further. So the first task that ENIAC has is to solve the equation of how to make the nuclear bomb work. The U.S. is trying to develop this atomic bomb, and it looks like the all those goobers, uh, including Oppenheimer and all those other great scientists, aren't able to figure out the calculations to make it work on their own. They need ENIAC to do it. Interestingly, Ned and ENIAC seem to be have some conversations about this, but in the end, the equation is solved, and the bomb is dropped on Hiroshima. And here's where we get into the frightening thing, is that we find out that ENIAC ordered that the second bomb be dropped on Nagasaki. Ned gets into a bit of trouble now for what he's done, since he seems to be the one that has woken up this computer that decided to send the second bomb to Nagasaki that gave the orders, the dead hand orders, that couldn't be rescinded to drop that bomb on Nagasaki. And from here, it starts to really veer out from our history. It turns out that there is a aircraft carrier with three more bombs loaded onto it, and they have plans to take out Moscow, Leningrad, and Tankograd because ENIAC can see that the Cold War is coming. Anyway, we get these howling commandos that come, and they take out all the members of that boat. They set off bombs make sure all those planes with those nukes fall off the plane and are destroyed so that they can't go on that bombing run. And then they stand down because their mission is complete. It turns out that at the same time as that mission happened, they tried to drop a bomb on Area 23, but were unsuccessful. Some little weasel seems to have snuck out ENIAC on a hard disk or something like that and get him free. Now we see throughout history this sense that ENIAC has been control of a number of things that have happened. This includes tips to the reporters that brought down Nixon, to uh, Russians networks getting hacked, to weird goings on with Israel and their nuclear program. And we even see that uh, a counter program was developed. This is Kane, which 
is Heniac spelled backwards and also happens to be the very first murderer in uh, biblical mythology. So we've got this counter hacking program and they seem to be basically like standing no chance against ENIAC. ENIAC seems to be just this supercomputer at this point, And all these hackers are just trying to get nuggets and little nibbles to get through ENIAC's firewalls with basically no hope of success. The first little bit of success they do get is a countdown. It seems like it's a breakthrough from this Kane program where they get a little part of ENIAC's source code, except that this little bit of a source code is, instead of anything useful, a countdown timer. And it looks like it has 95 hours on it as of when we first see it in the book. This cuts back to the Secretary of Defense telling agents Fletcher and Falk that your mission is to take out this supercomputer of ENIAC. So the mission is given to Fletcher and Falk. Go back to Russia. Find the asset whose name is Andronikov because the CIA believes that he has developed a weapon that can kill ENIAC. Which seems kind of weird to me since a nuclear bomb didn't do the job. So I don't know what is going to do the job. And then at the same time, we find out that, oh, as we can see, ENIAC has been spying on them the whole darn time. So we jump forward to the mission here. Agents Fletcher and Falk are in the plane. They are flying off to their mission, about to jump and parachute into Russia to start it. And boom, a bomb goes off in their plane. They have to bail. They have a little trouble with getting out there. Who's going to make it? Who isn't going to make it? They make it out showing some touching connection between these two agents that I think is in need of future development. And anyway, now they're way off target from where they're supposed to be on their mission, trying to get it done. And at the same time, we find out that ENIAC is, of course, tracking Allison Falk and Olivia Fletcher. And termination is imminent. Boom. And that's it. End of issue. So tell me, Sean, what did you think of this issue? Well, that's a good question. Thank you. I'm so glad you asked, Sean. I thought this was a pretty darn good first issue. It introduced our characters. It introduced the situation. It introduced an interesting alternative history to the entire world ever since World War II that uh, is the backdrop for this story. And it also hinted at a lot of intriguing developments that might be coming along the way. This is a socks are still on book. It didn't completely knock my socks off, but I thought it was a very solid first issue and it had everything that a first issue really needs. I expect the second issue is really going to be off to the races after this. And, uh, and let us know more about the situation, more about the characters, more about what is going on. So I think this did what it needed to do as a first issue, which was to make me intrigued enough to read the next one. But I mean, who are we kidding? Of course, I'm going to read the next one. Okay, first question I've got about this issue. Who is the main character of this story? The way this issue is framed, it looks like our main characters are these two agents, 
Fletcher, and Falk. And those are the characters that we are going to be following throughout this story. And I'm, I'm sure that that is the case. I bet that these are really the characters that we are going to be finding out more about and following up on as we continue the story. Like this is basically their story. It's told from their perspectives. Everything that we learn is from their perspective. And so I think clearly they are the main characters. But what about this Secretary of Defense? Is he going to have a more compelling role in the story? Or is he really just there to get the adventure started and to set our characters off on this path? Or what about poor Ned? Poor Ned with his bow tie. Poor Ned developed ENIAC, went to prison apparently over it, was arrested at least because of it, had very bad consequences over developing this supercomputer. So are we going to see anything more from poor Ned? That's kind of one of the questions that is on my mind. Will somehow Ned have still be involved in some way in the modern day? It was only 70 years ago, so poor Ned, you know, would be a, a old, old man at this point, but it's not impossible to think that if he was a young man during the time of World War II when he uh, created ENIAC, that he could be an old, old man now. And what about ENIAC itself? ENIAC, the supercomputer that is running everything. ENIAC is omnipresent in everything that's happening as we see it's tracking these agents as they have their quote-unquote secret meeting with the secretary of defense it's tracking the agents as they start their mission to come after ENIAC and try to destroy it so how much is ENIAC itself going to be a main character in this story that's one of the questions on my mind the second big question I've got is this a story where we can trust everyone or where we can't trust everyone? Can we trust that the Secretary of Defense is telling us the entire story? Or is there some sort of hidden motivations that we won't find out about until later? Can we trust everything about the agents, Fletcher and Falk, that they are completely uncompromised or is there going to be something more to who they are and why they are on this mission that we'll find out? And can we trust ENIAC itself? Can we trust this timer that it has any meaning or that it will end up leading to something else? I'm not convinced that this is a story where we can trust everyone and trust everything that we hear people say and know that it is certainly the truth. So... That is a big question on my mind going forward as well. How much can we trust the characters in this story? Did you notice that the Secretary of Descent says trust no one? Well, that's interesting, especially when obviously in stories, the person who says trust no one is the last person that you should trust. Come on. Every movie or book where somebody said that has obviously been the untrustworthy one. So I'm calling it can't trust this guy one bit. And now, for the first time anywhere, a dramatic recreation of a scene from ENIAC, this time with previously unreleased dialogue, finally restored to its previous full version. Our scene is an undisclosed location 
where the Secretary of Defense sits and tells two of his best agents about the threat of ENIAC and what their mission is. We think it's a missile launch. ENIAC has the key codes to every nuke on Earth. You have three days left to find out what it's doing, kill it, and save humanity. Oh, that's all, James? Where do we start? Back to Russia. The asset's name is Andronikov. The CIA believes he's developed a weapon that can kill ENIAC. It'll take an act of war to get to him, which is where you two come in. Find him. Get the weapon. Kill the computer. Okay, but before we do, a few more questions. Okay, please ask. So, ENIAC can track us through our clothes? That's why we had to come here naked? Like I said, we can't be too paranoid when it comes to tracking ENIAC. So, he could track us through my shorts and bra, but not through your cooler there. Well... Well, this this is a special cooler designed by the CIA. It has anti-tracking software and is encoded with all sorts of secret technologies. Is that there will... something you aren't telling us? <clears throat> the umbrella is special, too. That concludes this dramatic reenactment of this special extended scene from ENIAC number one. We hope that this extended scene helped to clarify some questions you may have about the world of ENIAC. All right, so I've got five things that I want to talk about that I noticed in this book. Five things that I want to bring up that stood out to me as either conspicuous or interesting or maybe nuggets of something that is uh, to come in this story. First things first, and this is an easy one, this book starts with a mission in Russia, and it ends with a mission in Russia. Is that going to be involved? Is somehow the stuff that happened at the very beginning of this book and the mission that Falk and Fletcher were on going to matter in the end, that they are going back to Russia? Hmm, it just seems a little coincidental, is all I'm going to say about that. Just a little coincidental the second thing ENIAC actually seems good at least in those early pages where we are first see ENIAC and poor Ned talking to ENIAC that somehow ENIAC and poor Ned are getting along and ENIAC seems to have some real issues with solving this equation to uh, basically invent the atomic bomb ENIAC seems to think, eh, this isn't really a good idea. I really don't think we should do this. Which really actually shows that maybe ENIAC is a beneficial being, at least at the beginning. I do think it's very interesting that the U.S. government hired this pool of people to essentially input the entire history of humanity into ENIAC's Data banks, And not just the uh, history, because they also made a point of the fact that they're entering in uh, information about the moral development of man into ENIAC's databanks. So at the end of this, ENIAC essentially should have this notion of what, what is the entire history 
of this world? What's the history of mankind? And what does everybody know about the moral development of mankind? And that seems to come right into play with the moral quandary that ENIAC seems to be in before all this happens. And I do think it's very interesting that after all that happens, that is when ENIAC decides yeah, okay, I'll, I'll solve the equation. I'll, I'll give you guys a nuclear bomb. It's like, now that I know all about you, I'll give you the nuclear bomb. That, I think, is a pretty interesting development there. So that then makes me wonder, why the heck did they even do this, right? Somebody decided that it was going to be a good idea to input the entire history of the world and all this information about the moral development of man into ENIAC just so that it could solve this equation. You'd think it would be easier to just basically make a computer that didn't have a brain and a heart to it to just crunch the numbers. Basically, they needed a big glorified calculator, and instead they had invented ENIAC, which seems to have had a brain and a heart, and they decided to supercharge it by feeding all this information into it. Somewhere along the line, somebody made a very, very bad idea about the way to move forward with ENIAC as opposed to the alternatives. Oh, and that bad idea drop there was not meant to be a pun. It just happened on accident. Okay, the third thing I want to talk about. So ENIAC uh, shows up once a year and shows these motivational quotes to the people that are searching after him as, I guess, a way to taunt them. The quote that we see that he puts up is a quote by Gandhi that A man is a product of his thoughts, what he thinks he becomes. And now here's an interesting question that I've got. This goes back to something that Ned was saying when he was developing ENIAC. He says that he wants to program it to educate itself, to think. And if it could do that, it could interact and it could feel. So he's trying to make ENIAC be able to think. And we see that he's successful. So now does ENIAC think of itself as similar to mankind, that what it thinks about, it becomes? Or is he trying to imply that this is a limitation of mankind, that mankind is confined by this notion of what he thinks he becomes? I don't really know. It's we we it shows how much we don't really know about ENIAC and what ENIAC actually thinks about humanity and its relationship with humanity. ENIAC could be all for humanity and want to be a part of it or could very much want to be apart from it. I don't really know which yet. And the fourth thing, there's a couple characters that refer to ENIAC as him. And I thought that that was fairly interesting. The first is the Secretary of Defense when first describing ENIAC. He describes him as he being a target that's impossible to find and that you have to be incredibly paranoid about us tracking him and, and stuff like that. Then at the very end, Olivia Fletcher, one of our two badass secret agents, calls ENIAC a him very conspicuously. And when called on it by her partner, Falk, says, uh, we're searching for an it, not a him. Fletcher 
says, well, yeah, that's that's what I said. I said it's not him. So that makes me wonder if something is going on. Somehow, maybe Fletcher is uh, compromised, knows something about ENIAC, similar to how maybe the Secretary of Defense has been compromised or won over or is being influenced by ENIAC in a way that makes them slip and refer to ENIAC as a him rather than an it. All right, the final thing. Thing number five, the cutthroats led by Sergeant Powers. I don't have much to say about them, but I just want to point them out because they're pretty darn cool. And I think that this is something that Matt Kent in particular is very good at, is creating these throwaway band of characters that are only relevant for a scene or two, but show up and have a ton of character and presence within the book. And I thought that this was just another great, great example of that. I think that they are pretty darn cool. And, you know, I think that we could see a book just about the cutthroats themselves and the harrowing adventures that they have been on. They clearly seem to be some sort of a riff on like Sergeant Fury and his howling commandos and all of that. And I thought that that was really cool. So I think that it was worth having a mention in this episode to talk about and just say that, man, I really appreciated those guys. Well, that was the gong, which means I'm out of time for this episode and it's time to start bringing this to a close. Well, that's what I've got to say about ENIAC number one. After going through all of that, I think that there is a lot that is hidden within these pages that is going to make a lot more sense to us as the story unfolds. It seems that there are a lot of seeds that have been planted that just need to be germinated and to grow and to sprout out above soil in future issues. So I am looking forward to talking about those as the series progresses and really diving in to those issues as they come out. Did I miss anything or did you notice something else or do you interpret something differently than I did? If so, you can send me an email at overthinkingcomics at gmail.com and I will read what you have to say. I'm very interested in what other people think of this story. You can find more episodes of this at overthinkingcomics.com or you can subscribe at Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, Spotify, whatever you use to catch your podcasts of choice. Please like or subscribe or whatever it is that kids do these days to podcasts to make sure that you don't miss more in the future. If you're a Twitter user, you can find me at Bad Deacon on Twitter. Feel free to say hello and let me know what you thought of ENIAC number one. And with that, this episode is a wrap. <laughs>